MacCast, Sunday, June 19th, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another episode of Mac's Mac news, hints, tips, tricks, going-ons, and all the happenings in the Mac community. Sorry for that little slip up there. Hopefully you are having a wonderful, great day weekend. Um, I don't know. What else? What other days can we have? Father's Day just happened. So hopefully if you're a father, for the fathers out there, hopefully you had a wonderful Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Things are going pretty well around here just relaxing, looking over the show notes at all of the Apple and Mac news we have to get into. Also some great feedback, some tips and tricks, and I have a kind of a fun little one for you too. So we're going to get into Apple augmented reality stuff. We're going to talk about iPhones for a little bit. We're going to talk about iPad Pro updates and M2 chips. We're going to talk about MacBook Pros. We're going to talk about some Apple TV news, including some sports stuff that was pretty interesting that happened this past week, and a little bit about AirTags. And then we're going to get into more Finder tips, going to talk about cable management. I've got some questions there. And like I said, I have a really cool little tip for you there at the end of the episode. So stay tuned for that. It should be great. I say we just dive in to the news kicking off things with what's next for Apple AR. Yes, Apple's AR VR headset isn't even here yet, but according to 9to5Mac, Tong international research analyst Jeff Poo thinks he knows what's next. And I know we've heard this before, so apologies in advance for probably repeating myself, but Poo says that after the launch of Apple's AR VR headset, the company will have a set of augmented reality glasses coming possibly around the second half of 2024. Now, Pooh believes the Apple AR glasses have entered the design phase of development with a prototype to be ready by the end of this year. Uh, in case you don't remember, the main difference between the AR VR headset that we've been talking about a lot recently uh, and this set of glasses is that rumors predict we could see an AR VR headset announced maybe even as soon as this year or next year, and it would be more like a standard set of virtual reality goggles with augmented reality functionality. So they'd have full autonomy, they'd be a headset that would work on their own with their own connectivity, their own processor, and yes, a very high price tag. They're expected to come in somewhere around the $3,000 range, and Apple's VR glasses will be more like Exactly that, a set of glasses with an AR display that's really designed to be an accessory to your iPhone. So your iPhone's going to be doing most of the heavy lifting in the case of the AR glasses, and those will be functioning mainly as a display for augmented reality content. Beyond that, we don't have a lot of details on the AR headset just yet. Now, turning back to the AR VR headset we're expecting to come out possibly this year. Next year, there are also rumors this week via the ELEC that LG Display, in addition to Sony, might be supplying micro OLED panels for that mixed reality device. Now, Apple is expected to use Sony panels for the main graphics of the heads-up display we've been 
hearing those rumors for a while now, but LG wants in on the game, according to the report, although their micro OLED panels might be used for an outer screen or some sort of indicator screen, according to the report. If you remember, we did hear rumors recently that the exterior of Apple's AR VR headset might have a display on the outside that could show the eyes of the wearer so people around them could see their facial expressions. So basically, it would film your eyes inside the goggles and project those to the outside of the goggles on, I would assume, this micro OLED display from LG. Now, I don't know about you, but this still seems really creepy to me. Like, I don't know that I, this is something I want in a set of VR goggles. Most of the time, you just have, you know, like a plastic cover, if you're familiar with VR goggles that are out there right now. And it looks a little bit silly because you're not really interacting with the wearer. I guess in an, in an augmented reality situation, maybe you would want that. But still just seems bizarre to me. I'd love to know your opinion on this, but they're saying that's what this panel might be. Now, the report also says that LG does have hopes for the future, that they may also win Apple's business for the internal micro OLED panels. So this may be the way that they get their foot in the door for doing that. But that's kind of the latest on Apple AR VR and uh, all that sort of stuff. The latest on iPhone 14 is that it may be getting some significant selfie upgrades. This is according to analyst Ming-Chi Kuo. He believes that Apple has added some new suppliers recently, specifically the South Korean company LG Inatech for the FaceTime camera components that are going to go into the new iPhone. And that may bring some long overdue improvements to the FaceTime camera. The updates are expected for all iPhone 14 models and will include finally adding autofocus, also adding a six-part lens versus the five-part that's currently being used, and getting a larger f1.9 aperture versus the f2.2 currently in use in the iPhone 13, which all should go to improve the overall quality of that camera. We're also expecting a possible big CPU upgrade that might be coming to iPhones in 2025. Nikkei Asia is reporting that Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, TSMC, announced that it expects to begin production of an ultra-advanced 2-nanometer chip production technology by 2025. The company claims the tech is based on nanosheet transistor architecture and that it will offer significant improvements in performance and power efficiency. That's versus the FinFET infrastructure, which is the technology currently used to make Apple's chips for the iPhone and the M series processors. And just for perspective, Apple's latest A series and M series chips use 5 nanometer technology and 3 nanometer technology is already in the works and expected to be available and ready later this year. Rumors have pointed to Apple possibly adopting 3 nanometer technology for the next round of the M2 chips, which are expected to be the M2 Pro and M2 Max, possibly available in 2023. That same technology will likely be used for the iPhone 15 chips in 2023 as well. You might remember last week that we were discussing a lot of the buzz around the iPad Pro and it possibly getting a larger version, a 14-inch version, with rumors coming from display analyst Ross Young and also via Twitter, uh, via the Twitter user Mahjong Boo. 
But this week, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, who tends to be pretty reliable in my opinion, in his recent newsletter doubled down on his perspective that Apple intends to stick with upgrades to the current size models. Gurman claims he expects to see Apple update the iPad Pro lineup around September or October with new M2 chips, along with wireless charging and upgrades to the camera system. Previously, Gurman had claimed that Apple had been experimenting rather with a larger iPad display, but he didn't seem to feel that Apple would do anything with the larger iPads until at least 2023. Now, last week, Mahjong Boo also added to his rumors that Apple was planning updates to the existing 11-inch and 12.9-inch iPad Pros, so we'll have to wait to see what happens. And speaking of display analyst Ross Young, this week he said he has new information that makes the idea of a 14-inch iPad, in my opinion, even murkier. He claimed that in recent checks with his suppliers, it didn't seem like the 14-inch iPad panel that Apple is looking into would be a mini LED panel and most likely would not support a 120 hertz variable refresh rate or Apple's ProMotion technology. If that turns out to be true, it would seem to imply that the panel is destined for a larger iPad and not an iPad Pro, which would feel odd. That said, the 11-inch iPad Pro does not have a mini LED to have mini LED technology or ProMotion either. But when explaining why, Apple claimed that it was because 11-inch users wanted a more portable, lightweight design, while XDR technology, or the mini-LED ProMotion technology, was better suited for a larger canvas like the 12.9-inch iPad Pro. So you would assume if they were going to do a larger panel, it would be for the Pro, but according to this rumor from Ross Young, that seemingly isn't the case. So... What does that mean? Is Apple going to do an update to the the entry-level iPad and maybe do a 10-inch version and a 14-inch version? That, to me, doesn't really make sense, but that seems to be the way the display rumors are going. So we'll have to keep an eye on this one, but you would think it would be a 14-inch Pro, but certainly not if it does. It certainly wouldn't be if it didn't have ProMotion or mini-LED technology. And since we're talking about the entry-level iPad, 9to5Mac says this week that Apple is readying a new entry-level iPad that will offer an A14 chip, 5G, and will finally switch from Lightning to USB-C. I think, if I'm getting this accurate, that's the last iPad still using Lightning. They also say that the updated iPad would have a better and possibly larger display, maybe 10.5 inches versus 10.2, could go as even as high, according to them, as 10.9 inches, and be a retina display that would match the quality of the iPad Air. But it would likely lack some of the higher-end features like the wide P3 color gamut or the higher display brightness. They didn't have any other details regarding the design, so it's not clear if that would remain the same with the larger bezels in the home button, but you would hope Apple would finally drop that design and adopt a more modern look with Face ID, something more in line with the current generation of iPads like the iPad Air and the iPad Pro. So seems like it's the right time to me. I'd be curious to know what you think. Are we ready for an entry-level upgrade in the design? I think definitely so. We continued this week to get more from Apple via several statements and interviews on why the new iPad OS 16 Stage Manager feature requires an M1 or better iPad. 
Apple told Rene Ritchie that Stage Manager is a fully integrated experience that provides all new windowing, a, an all new windowing experience that is incredibly fast and responsive, and allows users to run eight apps simultaneously across iPad and an external display with up to a 6K resolution. Delivering this experience with the immediacy users expect from iPad's touch-first experience requires, requires a large internal memory, incredibly fast storage, and flexible external display I.O., all of which are delivered by iPads with the M1 chip. Then, in an interview with TechCrunch, Craig Federighi said that it's only the M1 iPads that combine the high DRAM capacity with very high-capacity, high-performance NAND that allows our virtual memory swap to be super fast. And that's what allows the M1 iPads to be able to have eight apps operating instantaneously since each app is now capable of consuming up to 16 gigabytes of memory. Federighi also told Forbes that they tried to make Stage Manager work on non-M1 iPads and that their teams were just not satisfied with the performance. And in fact, 9to5Mac this past week did some digging and they did find internal settings in the iPad OS 16 betas that would allow you to enable uh, Shami or the stage man, which is the stage manager codename, or is it Shamoy? Um, I think you can pronounce it both ways, actually. But Shamoy uh, to be enabled for legacy devices. So it does look like Apple definitely had been playing around with allowing uh, the feature to run on a nine non M1 iPads, but according to Federighi. It just didn't work out. So in essence, they're saying that it's all about the architecture and specifically the way that the M series iPads can handle the unified memory, basically being able to use the fast NAND storage on the iPad as additional memory swap and doing that all with the power and controllers that are in the M1 processors. But there's a place where this argument seemingly falls apart, and that is the 64 gigabyte base model iPad Air 5. As pointed out by developer Steve Trotton-Smith, that iPad actually lacks the virtual memory swap capabilities, yet it still supports Stage Manager. So what's going on here? I thought about this a little bit, and to be fair, Apple has claimed that it's not just the memory swap, but also the speed and the processing and the technology built into the M1. So it is logical to assume that memory swap might not be the only mitigating factor. It's also logical to assume that maybe the stage manager experience might not be as good on the iPad Air 5th generation with the M1, but that was acceptable enough for Apple's team versus what they probably experienced on a non-M1 iPad. So they had to make a judgment call. They had to make a cutoff someplace. And I think that's likely what went down. Of course, I'm just speculating here, but that would make sense in my mind. And I have to say, if there is a way to actually turn the feature on for older iPads, probably via jailbreak or something like that. The community is going to figure it out and we will get to see what that experience is like and maybe make that judgment call for ourselves as well. So it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure there'll be some YouTube videos. I'm sure we'll see the performance. And a lot of times what we find out is that end users may have... Uh, expectations that are lower than Apple engineers, but that doesn't necessarily translate into a great or best experience. So just because it can run 
uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it should run. And again, I usually side with Apple's engineers on this, but we'll wait and see what happens once uh, iPad OS 16 finally launches in the fall. Remember last week when Mark Gurman said that Apple was working on a 12-inch notebook, but it was unclear if it would be a standard or a pro model? And then I said I was pretty skeptical about a 12-inch. Well, turns out analyst display analyst Ross Young is skeptical as well. He said in a tweet that none of their supply chain checks has turned up any hint of a 12-inch notebook in the, the works. Not only that, he said that Apple's current strategy seems to be firmly planted in the 13-inch and up camp. I personally would be more apt to believe that Apple is taking the iPad Pro lineup from an 11-inch and 12.9-inch size up to a 12-inch on the lower end and a 13.9-inch or maybe 14-inch display on the larger size sometime in 2023 and maybe that's where the display rumors are getting a little bit mixed up but that one's just my opinion i haven't heard that from any of the analysts but if i were kind of trying to read the tea leaves based on all these rumors that have been floating around that's sort of where i would see things in fact moving over to oled panels which have been rumored to be in the works for a while now from several sources Ross Young says that Apple will likely launch a notebook with a 13.3-inch OLED panel in 2024, along with OLED versions of the 11-inch iPad Pro and the 12.9-inch iPad Pro along the same time frame. He says that they will use a tandem stack display technology that uses two red, green, and blue emission layers to provide increased brightness and lower power consumption. The technology also creates a longer-lasting display. And in addition, he expects Apple will use variable refresh rates to further help with battery life. Finally, in the MacBook Pro news, Apple's 13-inch MacBook Pro with the M2 chip finally went on sale on June 17th and will be available for sale in store for for in-store purchases on June 24th. Also, as they launched that, they also did start selling that new dual USB-C 35-watt power adapter. Actually, both versions, the compact and the standard versions, are now on sale. Apple hasn't historically been much of a gaming company, and they really aren't when it comes to AAA desktop titles, but I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed not to believe that they have a significant presence in mobile games, and it now looks like between that and their services, they may be set out to carve a nice little business with Apple Arcade. The analysts over at JP Morgan think that Apple Music and Apple Arcade could have a subscriber base of upwards of a 180 million subscribers by 2025. Breaking it down, they say there would be 110 million users for Apple Music and about 70 million users for Apple Arcade. Altogether, they predict a growth rate of about 36%, which is pretty big. And that would see with just these two Apple services, Apple bringing in about 8 $1.2 billion by 2025, making Apple Arcade a $1.2 billion service all by itself. That's really not too shabby, I don't think, especially for a non-gaming company. 
Even with the good predictions, though, there are signs from the UK that inflation might have an impact on services and revenues, not just for Apple, but for everyone. A survey from Contar in the UK indicated that last month, music streaming services over there as a whole lost about 1 million subscribers. Now, as a whole, that's not a huge loss, but it is considered is interesting considering that previously we had seen mostly growth in the in music streaming services. Even more concerning might be the fact that it's actually younger subscribers that seem to be canceling more quickly, likely due to the fact that they have less discretionary income. So as things tighten up, you're making those hard choices, you're looking at your subscriptions, and music might be one of those things that you're willing to let go. I personally love Apple Music. I'd probably cut back on some of my streaming services because I don't think I can watch all of the content that's out there, but I can understand how people might be starting to come back, cut back on music. At the very least, again, looking at inflation and sort of what's going on with the economy, it would make sense that we're starting to see a contraction of people dropping streaming services. I don't know about you, but again, something I would definitely consider as things get tighter. Looking at streaming shows for All Mankind, Season 3 made its way into the Just Watch Weekly list of top 10 streaming shows, even after only being online for three days of that seven-day week, so that's pretty cool. I happen to really like and enjoy For All Mankind. It's an alternative history of the space race, and I think the show is great, and right now I'm getting into the latest season, and I think it's been a lot of fun so far. So it's not too surprising to me that it made it into the top 10 list, although I do feel like I should point out that it was the only Apple TV Plus show this past week to make the top 10 list. And then One more thing on For All Mankind, and this is kind of a spoiler alert, so if you don't want to get a little tiny spoiler, don't listen to this next part. You're going to want to jump over it. One nice nod to Apple history that's made an appearance this season is the Newton message pad. I think I've seen at least two versions of it in little flashes on the show. One of the most prominent shots being a message pad 120 that was being used by characters making a video call with their devices. As a matter of fact, the day after I noticed this in the show, I got a tweet from listener John who gave me a screenshot and kind of posted about it. And I replied to that just simply stating that I thought I did think it was a little bit odd that the video calls that were being placed on the device in the show were in color. Yet when the call ended, it went back to the traditional grayscale user interface of the iPads of that era. And then a really cool thing happened because the visual effects supervisor of the show Redfield actually replied in a tweet to those tweets and gave us a little bit of behind the scenes insight on exactly how that happened. He said, quote, I'm glad you noticed that. And in fact, it was a deliberate decision. So we didn't have to get into a whole color UI redesign for something that lasted as a mere blip on the screen. Hashtag efficiency. So you got to make those choices, and he's absolutely right. I mean, that shot when the call ends is literally probably tenths of a second. So wouldn't make sense to have to redesign a whole UI. And uh, just something I caught on the show, and I thought it was really cool to get a, uh, a tweet reply from the visual effects supervisor on For All Mankind. 
As you may know, Apple's been trying to get more sports on Apple TV+. They had the whole Friday Night Baseball deal that was announced recently. We've had rumors that they're trying to do some sort of deal with the NFL. Well, they had another big piece of sports news uh, to announce this week. Starting in 2023, Apple TV+, Plus will be the exclusive place to catch every major league soccer match. Apple and the MLS announced the deal that will make all games the League Cup and select MLS Next Pro and MLS Next matches available on Apple TV Plus exclusively. But here's the really cool thing, without blackouts or the need for traditional for a traditional pay TV bundle. Now, you do need to subscribe to the MLS streaming service, which is in addition to your Apple TV Plus subscription, and it will be available exclusively through the Apple TV app. This entire deal will last 10 years going into 2032, so Apple really locked this one down, which is amazing. Apple also says that a broad selection of matches will be available at no additional cost to Apple TV Plus subscribers with a limited number of matches available for free. So you will get some MLS content even if you don't subscribe to the MLS streaming service if you just have an Apple TV Plus subscription and even in some cases just for free. Now, fans with an MLS full season ticket package will also have full access to the MLS streaming service on Apple TV Plus. And all MLS and League Cup matches will include announcers calling the action both in English and in Spanish. And for all matches involving Canadian teams, those will be available in French as well. Overall, this deal is said to be worth an estimated $2.5 billion, or basically Apple paying $250 million per year. So Apple, again, opening up the wallet to grab some sports content for Apple TV+. And finally, in Apple TV Plus news, Apple has reportedly signed a new limited series deal that will star Billy Crystal, and this is according to Deadline. The show is called Before, and Billy Crystal will play Eli, a, quote, child psychiatrist who recently lost his wife when he encounters a troubled young boy. Not a lot of other details on what the series will be about, but the series will be written by Sarah Thorpe, and will be directed by Barry Levinson. And then finally in the news for this week, a little bit of AirTag news. As noted by analyst Ming-Chi Kuo, Apple really hasn't said much about AirTags since their launch almost two years ago. Really, the only time I think we've heard much about AirTags has been with all the questions and concerns around security privacy, and stocking, which has not been very positive for Apple. Apple has also, though, been making a steady stream of software improvements to address those concerns, which is a good thing. But now Ming-Chi Kuo says that AirTags actually have been pretty successful in terms of sales. He estimates that Apple has sold, or Apple sold rather, about 20 million units in 2021, with that rising to 35 million units in 2022. And that leads him to believe that if sales of the device keep growing at that rate, that Apple actually could do a Generation 2 of the AirTags at some point. But after I read this, that led to the question in my mind as to what more could you do with AirTags? What would you want to see? And the only thing I could come up with was possibly AirTags that were thinner 
and may be available in other form factors better suited for different kinds of applications. So sort of expand the line out into specific air tags that would go on specific products or devices or things. Uh, for example, a card for your wallet. It's pretty hard to jam an air tag in your wallet, even though a lot of people have made creative solutions for that. It'd be nice to to see Apple actually address specific use cases. So I would imagine that's how you would expand the line. I'm not sure what other technologies you could add in there. I guess you could maybe improve the, you know, uh, near location tracking, that sort of stuff. But what would you like to see in a second generation AirTag if Apple were to make one? Or do you even care about AirTags at all? Shoot me an opinion, a comment, maccast at gmail.com. But with that... That is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank my show sponsor, and that is Simply Safe. Today's episode of MacCast is brought to you by Simply Safe Home Security. And here at MacCast, we do believe that your home should be the safest place on earth for everyone in the family. And that's why I actually recommend and use Simply Safe. Simply Safe is advanced home security that puts you, your home, and your family's safety first. And here's why I love it the ease of setup and expandability. And as a matter of fact, this came in really helpful for me with my recent move. First, I was able to simply disassemble my system and bring it with me, which was great. So I didn't have to buy a whole new system. And then I could easily expand the system for my new space simply by ordering some new door sensors, some new window sensors, and an outdoor camera. And the setup of all of that was as simple as it was the first time. It was really a piece of cake. And you can customize the perfect system for your home as well in just a few minutes by going to simplysafe.com slash maccast. Go today and you can claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafe.com slash maccast. That's S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash maccast. Simplysafe.com slash maccast. And a big thank you to Simplysafe for their support of the show. For the past few episodes here on the maccast, we have been sharing finder tips, and I've got another couple great ones for you courtesy of some listeners this week so i am just going to dive in and play those for you starting off with this tip from andy hi adam it's andy from the sunny south coast of the uk long time listener to the podcast really enjoy the show uh, you've been asking for finder tips recently and this is one that i use all the time find it very useful and it's when i want to rename files in the finder but i might only just want to rename part of the file name so i'll give you an example um, i make youtube videos and i very often i will name them with the date so i had some files and part of the file name last week was was uh, the 2nd of June. So I had 02JUN22 in the file name. Now, because I'm lazy, when I record clips for the following week's video, I'll very often just copy and paste the file name across from the previous week, and then I just type some text after the date that identifies that particular clip. So I end up then with a bunch of clips for the new week. They have last week's uh, date in with some text before it which is the bit I've copied and pasted and then the identifying clip 
afterwards name after it if that makes any sense at all so what i can then want to do then is obviously i don't want last week's date on that file i want the new date on there so what i do is to highlight all of those files in the finder i then right click or control click and choose rename dot 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 and then you'll see a little box pop up and you've got uh, certain options on there. I use the replace text option and you can type in the string you want to search for in this example 02JUN and you can replace it with the text that you do want to appear in this case 09JUN because the video is going out the following week. Hit rename and then it'll rename those files but just that string in the file name. The rest of the file name will remain intact. There are other options on there as well. You can add text to the end of a or the beginning of a file name. You could do some formatting on there, for example, sequentially number the files. Really useful things in there um, to help you uh, save you a bit of typing, basically. And it's a great tip that I use all the time in the Finder. I really love the show, Adam. Keep up the good work and uh, really look forward to hearing the next episode. Hey, Andy, here's the next episode for you. <laughs> Actually, that is an amazing tip. I always forget how powerful the renaming functionality in the Finder is. And that was an absolute great reminder of that. And luckily this week, that wasn't the only great tip we got from a listener. I also received this one from listener Dan. Hey, Adam, you guys have been talking about favorite tricks for the Finder. And my favorite trick I discovered this last year is the ability to drag with three fingers. You can turn it on in system, in settings, and then accessibility. And then you go to pointer control, click the trackpad options button, and then you can turn on um, enable dragging and use, I use three fingers. And the reason I love it is because there's no tension like there is normally with when using the trackpad, you hold with the thumb. And I've tried all different things, magic mouse and trackball. And for me, I just think the trackpad is a great control device with the different gestures and stuff. But this way with three fingers, there's no tension. You can highlight text, drag items in the finder, do fine-tune adjustments in like a knob or a, adjusting the handle on something. And it just works great. So that is my favorite tip. Hey, Dan, thank you for that one. That one is amazing as well. What's interesting about this one to me is it's such a subtle difference, right? The difference between clicking to drag versus just taking three fingers and dragging without having that click. It seems like such a subtle little distinction that wouldn't really make that big of a difference, but it really does. It really just makes it nice and convenient, like you pointed out in that in that tip. So thanks to everyone who's been sending in these great finder tips. Let's keep it going. I'm sure there's more out there. We can keep sharing these until we run out of them. Uh, we may never run out of, the, out of them, though, actually. So if you have a great one that you haven't heard yet, uh, share that with us. Shoot us an email. Send us an audio comment. Maccast at gmail.com. Now, Dan wrote in, and different Dan uh, wrote in this week with a question regarding something that I think we all suffer from. I know I definitely suffer from this, but we likely all have different solutions for. And I'm talking about the horrible problem of cable clutter. I absolutely hate it. I have to admit, I am not very good at managing it. 
And like Dan, I have like dozens of items connected to my Mac or what feels like dozens of items. Maybe it's only uh, half a dozen plus. But, you know, I think about it. I have a Drobo. I have a media drive. I have a backup drive. I have a clone drive. I have my audio interface. I have a mouse, a keyboard, a USB hub, headphones, power cables, all the cables that go along with that. Two monitors, each with their own video cable and a power cable. I guess that is probably dozens. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff. I got all this junk coming out of the back of my computer, and I hate looking at it. I hate seeing it. And I actually have um, a standing desk thing that sits on top of my desk. It's not an actual standing desk, but it's like one of the little shelves that converts it. And for the longest time, I couldn't even use my standing desk because the cables were such a mess, absolutely mess. And so the question becomes, how do you manage and wrangle cables. Now, I know that I've tried all kinds of products that have been out on the market to organize cables and clips and things for running cables and routing cables this way and that. Um, I've tried all those cable organizers over the years. None of those systems ever seems to be perfect. They all feel like good ideas and then you buy them and try them out and I don't know. Zip ties are great. Um, and one thing that I do like, but the issue with those is if you ever need to undo it or you need to move a cable or something like that, right? You're snipping and re-zip tying. Not like that big a deal, but it is a giant hassle. So then you go, well, what about those cool Velcro ties? You know, those are great because you can undo them and kind of redo things. But I've generally found it feels like you need more, the, uh, Velcro ties than the zip ties. At least I always feel like that's the case. And they can be a little bit more expensive, although they've come down. They're pretty, you can find some pretty cheap ones now, but then you need different sizes. And I don't know. It just all feels like a big giant hassle. And I've also used different size split tubing to bundle sets of cables together to cover them up. And that's kind of my latest solution is I do zip ties or the Velcro ties kind of put little bundles of cables together and then cover them up with split tubing just so that they look a little bit nicer. But I still have these giant kind of cables routing around everywhere. I'd love to have one of those desks that you see in magazines or people post online. I don't know. I, th I, I think they just are clever at really hiding cables and maybe that's the trick maybe it's just more about hiding them and routing them into or under a desk and drilling holes and i don't know what all the little tips and tricks are i know i've used cable covers that you can attach to the walls or the edges of your desk i've used the under under the shelf bins and things like that where you kind of just drop the cables in underneath your desk and those can be helpful although you get too many cables under there and they start spilling out I've seen cable management bins that kind of sit on the floor and can house and cover your power strip. And you just have all the cables on the floor in that little bin. And those look good, but I've never actually tried one of them. I've wanted to, but then I always feel like it's going to be one of these things that I buy. And it just, again, it looks better <laughs> in the image on Amazon than it actually is in practice. So the one item I, I can honestly say that really helped with my cable management um, with my laptop, at least, was getting a Thunderbolt 3 hub. So I can connect all that list of stuff that I just mentioned 
into the hub, I can clean up all those cables on my desk. And this has actually allowed me to be able to use my standing desk uh, with the trick that I mentioned where I bundle the cables together and I use a, a split tubing. And now everything kind of looks pretty nice. And I simply have one cable that I plug my laptop into when I want to come and go from my office. And so that makes things look a lot nicer, but still I got cables going everywhere. I, I, let's be honest. I look over to the right side of my desk. I can see them. Right? I try to hide them as much as possible, but it just never seems to work out. So the question is, I guess this is really a call for help for all of us messy people out there who don't know how to do cable management properly. What are your solutions? What are your recommendations? What products are you using? I'm sure there's also some clever, helpful tips and tricks out there for reducing or even eliminating. Can you eliminate cable clutter? Eliminating cable clutter if you know how to do this. Share your wise wisdom with us. Become our cable gurus. Shoot me an email or an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. And we will definitely share those. And hopefully, hopefully, Dan, someone will have the solution for us because I don't think I'm the right guy to ask here if I'm being 100% honest. Okay, finally, hey, I have a really cool trick for you uh, for doing a speed test on your network. And what's cool about this is I'm going to teach you to do it from the terminal. This is a terminal trick. I actually have to give credit. I found this on iDownload blog. I'll have a link to their original article in the show notes at maccast.com. Uh, it's not as pretty as running speed test on, say, speedtest.net. But if you just need some quick results without having to go to your browser and without having to suffer through ads and all the extra pop-ups and all that stuff, and if you're running macOS Monterey, you do need to be running macOS Monterey to do this, you can try this trick. So open up the terminal and type network quality, all one word, with a capital Q. I think you can do it all lowercase as well, but if you're trying to get the man page for it, you need to use the capital Q for some reason. So network quality space dash V for verbose and hit enter. And this will run a quick network upload download speed test right in your terminal and display the results right there. Now you can run the command without the dash V, but it and it will give you kind of a slightly less detailed result, but you'll still get the upload download speed, which is typically mostly what you're after when you're running a speed test. And actually, if you want to know the full set of available options, you can run the command with the dash H option for help, or again, access the man page by typing man space network quality with the capital Q. It is important there, just not when you're running the command for some reason. And you'll see all the available commands. Now, one I saw in there that I think is particularly handy is the dash S option. And this will run the download and upload tests in sequence rather than in parallel. So maybe if you want to run upload first and then download right after that, you can do it. The default way it will run is it runs both in parallel, gives you the results a little bit quicker. I don't know if that would have any impact on the actual speed test itself. So you can play around with those settings and see if it does. Uh, there's also a dash C option that would allow you to load your own configuration URL. So I think you can kind of control a few more things with that. And there's actually a GitHub page that uh, explains how you can do those configuration files. So cool little speed test trick in the terminal. 
Uh, play around with it. Let me know what you think. Interestingly, Apple also has a support page for the feature. I will link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. Uh, that details the terminal command along with the instructions uh, and also has a network profile, Wi-Fi network profile, that you could install on iOS 15, on your iOS 15 devices, if you have an Apple developer account that allows you to get speed tests from the uh, network settings on your iOS device. I do think you need to have a developer account, though, uh, to get access to that testing profile. So if you have a developer account and are running iOS 15, you can follow that link in the show notes at macass.com and even get some speed tests up and running uh, default without an extra app in your iOS device. So there you have it. Cool little terminal speed test thing. But with that, that is going to do it for this episode of the MacCast. Thank you for hanging out with me. Before I leave you, I do want to say that bandwidth for the MacCast has been provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, uh, if you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. You can also call in on the listener hotline and leave a voicemail. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-I-AM-9. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you can find those on the website. That's at MacCast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast, or just find me on Instagram, MacCast on Instagram. But that will do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.